Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So uh, welcome again to the story. Uh, if you've been around the story a while, you know that the story's mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. Um, and we love religious people. Uh, and if you're religious, you're welcome here. But uh, you're not the reason we exist. The reason we exist is uh, for non-religious people, people that define themselves as spiritual but not religious or agnostic or atheist or, or anywhere in that uh, realm of, of thinking. And, and, um, and we're that way because God has, has led me on a journey through a lot of those seasons of life where I have been, uh, I've had more questions than answers. I have been agnostic. I have been atheist. I have been just wrapped up in, in doubt. And I, I know what it's like to go through those seasons and to have churches tell you, well, something's just wrong with you. You just don't have what it takes. You don't have what it requires to be uh, acceptable to God. And um, even now that I, I believe, even now that I've, I've chosen to respond to God's message with faith um, and, and I identify as a Christian now, even now I still struggle with church sometimes, even though my job kind of depends on not struggling with church. Like, I, I recognize the tension here, but, but it's real. I just want to name it and say sometimes the church, instead of a megaphone for proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, sometimes the church acts more as a, a filter and filters some of the most important parts of Jesus out. And so you, you might have, have noticed this as your time as a church, as a church member, because sometimes the church uses Jesus rather than as the end in itself. Like getting people to know Jesus is the lead measure, right? Sometimes we treat Jesus as a commodity, as a means to a greater end. And what's the greater end? Well, we want to build bigger churches. We want to build a bigger budget. We want to have a cooler sanctuary, whatever. Like we want, to, we want to do all these things that churches do when they grow. I'm not saying church growth is bad. Please don't hear me say that church growth is bad. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes you grow, sometimes you don't. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're proclaiming Jesus or not. There's not always a, a correlation there, right? And so, in fact, sometimes if you really dig into Jesus' words, sometimes you'll find contradiction between the stuff Jesus said and the stuff you've heard preachers like me say. And so I really, with this series called Jesus Unfiltered, as much as possible, I want to get back to the place where people knowing Jesus is the end game, not growing the church, right? So if that's a side product of that, that's fine, but that can't be the thing, right? The thing needs to be people knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus believed. When was the last time you asked your question, what did Jesus believe? What did he 
believe to be true. We always talk about people believing in Jesus, how it's important it is for you to believe in Jesus, and that's great. But what did Jesus believe? I think the best way to get to that question is with Jesus' own words. So as much as possible for the next seven weeks, I want to take the filters out, the filters of church and middlemen. And I fully recognize that I'm standing here right now as a middleman, um, and I, uh, I can't help but be a filter in some ways. I just need you all to work with me and, and trust that I'm going to try not to be a filter as much as possible. The best way that we could find to do this was just to sit with Jesus' own words, just to absorb his words. And so we're making these little videos for every single week in this series so that you can just absorb his words. And I'm not going to fill out these sermons with a bunch of other proof texts from other parts of the Bible and say, here, this in, you know, Hebrews says, this is what Jesus must admit. No, no, I just want you to hear Jesus for who he is, for what he believed. We're going to do that um, by looking at his parables. Um, and now, uh, his parables uh, are the way Jesus preached. So when it came time for Jesus to do what I'm doing now, First of all, he didn't take 30 minutes to do it. He took about 30 seconds to preach. So y'all would have liked Jesus' sermons. And he preached them. He didn't have three points and a poem and a joke. You know, like a lot of preachers, he didn't have like C.S. Lewis quotes and stuff like a lot of us do, right? He just told simple stories. He didn't create study guides or slideshows to make sure you're entertained and stuff like that. He just told parables. Parables are simple stories, fictional tales that tell the truth. Fictional tales about the truth. So parables are simultaneously fiction and nonfiction. It's sort of a paradox, but when you ask yourself the question, is the Good Samaritan a true story? Well, it's fiction. It's, it, he, he made up the story. He wasn't reporting the news when he talked about the guy getting beaten up and the Samaritan helping him. But is it a true story? In the sense that it has a 2,000-year shelf life and it still changes lives today in a whole different part of the world like us today. You know, we're not, we're not first century Palestinian Jews or, or you know, first century people like Jesus. We're, we're not who he was. We're not his people. But it still affects us. So was it a true story? Probably. In the truest sense of the word true. Jesus told 37 of these stories, at least 37 unique stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You won't find parables in the Gospel of John. John was written later, and I honestly think that John figured Matthew, Mark, and Luke had covered the parables, uh, and, uh, and, and he didn't want to repeat what they had said. And so Jesus, John covered some other stuff about Jesus. But in his parables, what we find are the beliefs of Jesus. The parables Jesus told were his apologetics. Now, apologetics is a big fancy word that just means the art or the science of, of logically explaining or defending your beliefs over and above the beliefs or worldviews of other people. And so when Jesus tells his parables, he's telling people what he believed in contrast to what empire was about and what religion was about. And so he's offering a third way a way that has nothing to do with Rome and Caesar, a way that had nothing to do with the Pharisaic uh, judgmentalism. He's offering a third way. The parables are Jesus' apologetics. We talk a lot about apologetics at the story because of our mission, being about non-religious people. We want people to know there's a way to make logical sense of faith in God, and there is. Don't hear me say that there's not. But I will tell you that the way we do apologetics is limited. 
the way we do it, which is like making logical, reasonable arguments. And I love to make lists of all the reasons why it makes more sense to believe in God than not. I love to make lists of why Christianity makes more sense than other religions. And all that stuff is just my Western enlightened brain, like trying to be in control. I want to be in control and I want to know it all. But I can't know it all. I have a finite brain. God is infinite. God's not, it's, it's not God's responsibility to make everything logically known to my little brain, right? And so sometimes our apologetics, our logic, isn't going to be enough to reach the vast mysteries of who God is. And sometimes it takes a story to explain the unexplainable. We all know that a good story has that power. Now, Jesus' stories, like the one we just heard, on the face of it, seem, I'll be honest, pretty boring. I mean, that farmer story, it's not exactly Tolkien-esque, you know, like, it doesn't really hold a candle, Harry Potter and all this stuff that we get into today, like, it's just some random farmer throwing a bunch of seed around, and then there's crops. Yeah, that's what happens. You know, like, who cares? And, and, and we don't really... We don't really know what to do with these stories unless we know uh, how, to, how to read them. Um, but there, there, is, there is a reason why these stories won't go away. There's a reason why we're here 2,000 years later talking about it. It has a shelf life because every time you study these stories, really, you discover something you've never discovered before. It's the same is true for me and anyone else who studied the Bible their whole life or just new to the faith. You always peel back some new layers. And that is the genius of Jesus. That is, ironically, what makes me so jealous of him. Like, I know that's a sin, to be envious of Jesus, but as a preacher, I would love to have that power to stand up for 30 seconds and say something that people are still talking about 2,000 years later. That's amazing. My sermons are 30 minutes on a good day. And if you heard it once, you pretty much got it. Like, if you have to sit through it again, like my poor, poor staff, like, you have a poor staff every Sunday, four times, four times every Sunday. That's two hours of me up here saying the same thing four times with basically one layer of stuff. After the first one, they're always very complimentary. They're a great job, Pastor. After the fourth one, they're Candy Crush sagaing away. Like, that's that. That's how it works. Because once you've heard my sermons once, you've, you've got it. But Jesus' sermons were different. So many layers. I want to um, equip you to understand these parables as we read them for the next seven weeks. The most important tool to have when understanding these uh, and interpreting these stories is just the knowledge that nine times out of ten, when Jesus tells a story, it's not primarily about you. Nine times out of ten, you are not the protagonist in the parable. God is. Almost without exception, Jesus' stories are about God. Because remember, they're his apologetics. He's telling people what he believes to be true about God and the nature of our reality, right? There's the occasional exception. The Good Samaritan comes to mind where, uh, where humans are uh, the protagonists in the story. But almost without fail, um, the stories are about God. He's teaching people something different um, about God. And that's the case with today's parable we know that for Jesus, the farmer in the story is God. We know this because one thing that sets Matthew 13 apart, this parable we just heard about the farmer, is that Jesus himself explains it for you. If you just read the rest of Matthew 13, 
You don't even have to listen to the rest of the sermon because Jesus already told you what it means. Just open your Bibles or your Bible apps and you'll see uh, Jesus explains it. He says, yep, the farmer in the story is God. And then he says the seeds that the farmer's throwing around are is the, the gospel message. It's the, the message, my word of, of my kingdom that I spread around. And then the soil in the, in the story represents the different kinds of human hearts. And there's different kinds of human hearts uh, in the world and receive the word different um, ways. So the first kind of heart that Jesus uh, tells about is one that's been hardened. Um, Think of someone you know that's just hard of heart. Think of how they got to that place in their life. Jesus analogizes the hard-hearted to being a footpath. Uh, almost to say that they've been stepped on. Or they've been trampled down or beat down. And I think that happens sometimes. I think some people are just hard-hearted because they've decided that's their coping mechanism. That's their way to get through life. It's easier to be hard-hearted than it is to have a soft heart. And that's the truth. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's easier not to feel than it is to feel. But he says this first kind of person, when they hear about God, they don't absorb the message. It's not that they're just willfully rejecting it, like, get that out of my face. It's just irrelevant to them. Just like seeds are irrelevant to a footpath, the word of God is irrelevant to someone who is hard of heart. So the enemy comes in and swoops down and snatches God's word away from them. The second kind of soil is uh, the person who is frankly just shallow. Y'all have any friends or family members who are fit that description? Just shallow. Jesus called it rocky soil, but if you're ever in the Holy Land, you'll know that a lot of the soil there has this bedrock underneath it, and so it's just a few inches of, of soil, and then you dig below that, and it's like hitting rock. And so the plant, it takes root quickly, but it doesn't grow the roots deeply, and when the plant grows up, there's not enough sustenance to keep it from scorching in the sun. And uh, this is to say that shallow people often will hear about the good news of God's hope and think this is the best thing ever. You'll come to church and you'll be having a bad week. You'll come to church on the invitation of a friend and you'll hear about this God who loves you. And it sounds amazing. And maybe the preacher tells you that if you're good to this God, this God will be even better to you. And so then you rearrange your life around this new religion. And so you start coming to church. Almost every week you're at church. And I mean, unless you're traveling or on vacation or sick or hungover or just really tired, you're at church because it matters to you now. And somebody told you if you're good to this God, then he'll be good back to you. And it works for a while until life happens. It hits the fan, and you lose your job, or you get cancer, or you can't get pregnant, and, and you think to yourself, I prayed about these things. I prayed for God's protection. I prayed for God to intervene. I've still got cancer, or I still can't get pregnant, or I still don't have a job. That's not the deal you entered into. You entered into a religious bargain that sounded good at the time, and like a Gym membership, it just gets worse as the year goes along. <laughs> and, so, and so when life happens, it burns you out. You flame out. And a lot of people that fit that description never come back once they decide God isn't who the church said he was. He doesn't take care of people who love him. Right? The third kind of soil are the hearts that are just overgrown, over with weeds and thorns. These are the people uh, who, who get 
overwhelmed with the worries of this world. I want you to hear it straight from Jesus' mouth, though. This is how Jesus explains it. It's verse 22 of chapter 13. Jesus says, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. And he said, worries and the lies of wealth will choke out the word. Man, I'm glad we learned that lesson, you know. Like, uh, I'm glad that really sunk in with us because we don't worry anymore and we don't, we don't fall for the lies of wealth anymore, right? No, that's, that's not the case at all. Like, especially if you didn't grow up with money. I didn't grow up with money and I grew up with worries. And I thought that when I found money, it would take care of the worries. And what do you discover? You get money, you're still worried. All of us have learned the brutal fact that Biggie was right in the 90s. All of us have discovered that my favorite Christian rapper had a point all along. It is, in fact, true. More money, more problems. And uh, some of you were lost until I said that last part. You're like, who's Biggie? I don't know this Biggie person. Uh, is he on KSBJ? I, I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> he ain't. He ain't. All right. <clears throat> so all of us find out one way or another that the, the pursuit of wealth is a trap that chokes the life out of you. Then Jesus says there's this fourth kind of soil, the, the good soil. And what makes the soil good is that it's prepared. It's receptive. It's open to receiving the word of God and producing a crop um, by the grace of God's message. It's receptive. And so whenever um, I hear this message or, or talk about this story, I think the first question on everybody's minds is always, oh my goodness, what, what kind of soil am I? We put ourselves at the center of the story again, and that's an important question to ask. What kind of soil are you is a very important question to ask, but I think it only matters if you ask that question after first asking, what kind of God is the farmer? Because remember, these stories are primarily about God. Until we figure out what, God, what Jesus is teaching us about God, I'm not sure it matters that much what kind of soil we are. So before we ask what kind of soil are we, we should ask what kind of God is the farmer in this story. I want you to think, because you're going to miss it if you just think of the soil in your own heart. Think with me about the technique that this farmer employs in the story. If you really look at what Jesus is saying, uh, it sounds deranged this farmer's approach because he's a farmer, right? How many of you grew up on a farm? Probably three of you. All right, about that much. And so that's why we miss it, right? So this farmer has a bunch of seed and he's just throwing it anywhere, just willy-nilly all over his land. But it's his land. So he knows what his land is like. He knows there's good soil over here and he's not so good soil over there. But he's putting just as much seed here as he is there. And it doesn't make any sense to us, but especially not to Jesus' audience when he's telling this story. I want you to imagine being in his audience. It was an agrarian society. For these people, their kids' lives depended on the crop. The seeds were of ultimate importance. You don't waste seeds. <clears throat> At best, this behavior 
was, was insane. At worst, it's reckless. It's negligent. It's dereliction of duty for a farmer to waste good seeds on all these kinds of bad soil. Put all that seed in the good soil and get a better bumper crop. Problem solved. That's not what this farmer does. You can imagine Jesus' audience, the men just shaking their heads in disbelief, like raising their hands to correct him. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how farming works, you know. Or, or you know, women just wincing in disbelief as Jesus tells them about this farmer that wasted his good seeds on bad soil. And then Jesus lowers the boom on him. Jesus says, I'm telling you, God is like that farmer. That foolish, reckless farmer is what God is like. So when it comes to the way God spreads his message and to whom God spreads the word and makes himself known to us, God does not discriminate based on the kind of soil that you are. Okay? To God, it's, you don't get more seed thrown at you by being here on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping off some vendor at home or someone else's home on a Sunday morning. Like, you don't get extra credit. You don't get more seed. You don't get more of the message. God continues to throw it everywhere else because he just wants to get to know his children. He wants, he, he, he wants to give us the chance. And he will not stop giving us that chance. Now, I used to find a lot of comfort in this. This was a, a layer of the story that I peeled back a few years ago. And it was real eye-opening. And it was comforting to me. Because I kind of grew up around a religion that said, uh, a form of Christianity that said, God wants to know some of his children. But not all. You know what I mean? Like, God wants to know some of us. But some of us just don't have a chance. So we created some of us for salvation and created others for condemnation. And, and we're a part of the, the in crowd. So we get the seeds. And so when I discovered this kind of God that, that scatters the seed everywhere, it just, it sort of sounded freeing to me. It sounded good. This is something I can tell my friends about. My God loves everyone and he wants everyone to know him. And it's, it's a good message. It is a comforting message. But it's not entirely comforting. Because if you keep thinking about it long enough, you realize what this means. You realize that if God throws seed at all kinds of soil, and at some level it's, it's up to us to decide what kind of soil we're going to be today. There is in the New Testament this idea of the grace of God on which all of salvation hinges and rests, right? Salvation is all about the grace of God, which is a free gift, freely offered to all people. That's the seeds. But there is also this idea in the New Testament of the importance of faith, the believing heart, the one who stands up and says, yes, I believe, even if it gets me laughed at, even if it gets me uninvited from the parties, even if I have to change, you know, my friend's group or my public image or whatever, like, I believe that this stuff is true. That is where the growth, the crop um, happens. There is there's some kind of <clears throat> responsibility that we hold here. And it's scary because, you know, it's just our eternal souls hanging in the balance. And so it, that's, that's heavy. That's a big, big deal. And a lot of people get really hung up on this very issue. 
The idea that God leaves the rest of it up to us to figure out, to be receptive, that he gives us the freedom to choose what kind of soul that we are. And it kind of begged the question in my mind this week, and this was kind of one of those moments where I, I spent 48 hours just pondering this one question. But it begged the question this week that if that's really God's desire to know everyone, that everyone know him, if it's, wow, the paper's going everywhere. Sorry, y'all. If it's, if it's really God's desire, then why does he not make it easier and clearer to the point of just being evident and obvious and impossible for someone to deny him? You know, this is the question I hear a lot of agnostics and atheists asking today. I know a lot of people who became atheists and agnostics over this very issue because to them it sounds like God doesn't care enough because the people who are the bad soil apparently end up in hell. So why wouldn't God make it easier? In other words, why wouldn't the farmer in the story have gone to the extra step of tilling the bad soil before scattering the seed everywhere? He's the farmer. That's what you do. You could have done it. You could have made it easier for people. You could have tilled up the hard soil. You could have tilled up the rocky soil. You could have tilled up and pulled the weeds. It seems unfair to many people that God would send some people to hell for not accepting him when he hasn't made himself entirely, clearly, obviously apparent to them. Uh, we're starting a new um, podcast, the new uh, first episode, first real episode is coming out this week. It's a podcast called Maybe God. I hope you will check it out. The first episode is an interview that I have with uh, the son of famous evangelist uh, Tony Campolo. His name is Bart Campolo. He's a outspoken agnostic and, and atheist now and he uh, is hung up on this issue that God would send a bunch of people to suffer in hell for not accepting him because such a God seems either imaginary or unworthy of our love and affection and worship. So these people want to know if so much is at stake, why doesn't God make it easier? You know, one of Bart's uh, comments was, why doesn't God just make someone's arm grow back when they lose their arm? Why doesn't God answer every prayer that we pray with a resounding yes so that we all would know? Why didn't God stand up on stage with Lady Gaga on the halftime show and sing um, 10 Million Reasons or whatever and, and, and make it all obvious for everyone? Um, and, and what they're really asking is, why didn't the farmer till all of that soil so everyone would be receptive, whether they really wanted it or not, they would be receptive, and they would go to heaven. And hey, I get it. It sounds enticing, uh, such a God, at least at first. We might think we want a God who makes himself so evident that no one, none of us could ever deny his existence and his majesty until you realize just what a maniac that God would be. People have had those gods before. Jesus' audience knew of gods like that. They called them Caesar and Stalin and Hitler and Mao. We've had these gods who lined up perfect rows of obedient, blindly obedient <clears throat> crops of followers who followed them without ever questioning their rule. 
it just never really worked out. It never really works the way you think it will. So this farmer in the story Jesus tells, he had the power to till that soil. He absolutely could have tilled the soil and planted perfect little rows of blind bumper crops of people like you who never question and never doubt and are afraid to doubt because you've never been given the choice to doubt. But we know that would not work out because there's something within the human spirit that refuses to be controlled. We were not created for control and coercion. We know that. We were created for love and freedom. Even atheists admit, like, love is better than control and all of that. Like, we know deep down that's the purpose of our existence. We know that love requires that freedom to choose. Freedom to choose what kind of soul you are. The freedom to choose to be a footpath, a hard-hearted person, or the freedom to choose to soften your heart, to become fertile soil and to feel again. So the thought that's been on my mind, you guys, is maybe when it comes to salvation and condemnation, maybe all along it hasn't been God condemning people. Maybe God has never condemned anyone. Maybe it's not God who points the way to hell. Maybe we find that place ourselves after years and years of saying no. Over years and years of choosing to be selfish or self-interested or self-involved and cut off from any whispers of eternity, any possibilities of transcendence or divine love. Maybe over time we choose that for ourselves because Jesus' take on this when it comes to God, that he just never stops throwing seeds. No matter how many times you've said no, no matter how many times I reject it, he never stops trying, right? And this is the good news of this story, is that every farmer knows a farmer's work is never done. And even if you've said no a thousand times, a thousand seasons in the past, your heart has been hardened by hate or anger or fear. No matter how many times you've said no, God has been there all along throwing just as much seed in your direction as the most faithful Christian on earth. God has never given up throwing seeds in your direction. And what's going to happen to you one day is after years of choosing to be hard of heart, after years of choosing to let the weeds grow instead of pulling them up, after years of choosing to say no instead of yes, you're going to wake up and realize that life means something more. The life you've been living is empty. And that every instance of love you've ever felt in your life, every person you've ever cared for and held close, every moment of transcendence, every sunset that brought a tear to your eye, every starry night that brought you to your knees, every single time you've been embraced and truly loved, none of that was just an illusion brought on by evolution so that you will feel some fake hope and propagate the species. None of it was about, you know, this Darwinian push of DNA forward. It was real and it was true and it was God leaving breadcrumbs for you all the way home again. It was him casting seed on your heart, heavy heart, until you softened it and finally said, yes, I believe. 
believe it's real. I believe it is true. Jesus told this story 2,000 years ago because he wanted you to know today exactly what you mean to God. And if you are an agnostic or doubting person, I have all the sympathy and empathy in the world for you. I know exactly what you feel. And what's on your mind right now is even if you said yes to something that might be true, it might mean becoming one of those weird Christians like that guy on stage right now. <laughs> and your life will never be the same. Well, that's true. Your life will never be the same. But I mean that in the sense that every, every ounce of joy you have felt to this point while rejecting the hope of God will be magnified times infinity when you say yes at last to God and to the purpose for which you were created. You don't know what freedom is. Walking away from religion is not freedom. I know you thought it was. I thought it was too. I'm not saying walk back to religion. I'm just saying leaving the church isn't freedom. There's a greater freedom that awaits if you just say yes. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this freedom and this joy. Some of us... <clears throat> Just on the brink, we don't quite know what this even means yet. I pray for courage in the minds and hearts of those who are on the fence and who aren't quite sure what they think or believe about all this. Lord, I pray that you would peel away the layers of religion and religiosity and, and all the stuff, the churchy stuff that we get into sometimes, and just let us experience you in an unfiltered way so that we can make our decision about what we believe about who you are and who you say we are. Thank you for your love, for never stop, never stopping um, sending your message in our direction, even as we said no time and again. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.